when we talk about something coming to an end, we know that that can be a good thing or that can be a bad thing. Uh, I know uh, for, from experience that when a woman is in labor for a long period of time, heavy labor, and she finally bursts that beautiful little bundle of joy and those labor pains are over, that that is a good thing. Right, ladies? That's, that's a good thing. I know for myself to try to relate with the men that when I'm watching on the rare occasion a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie with my wife, and it finally comes to an end, finally comes to an end, that that is a very, very good thing. Uh, a, a, amen. So some things we like to see come to an end, other things we don't. In fact, we hate seeing it come to an end. I know that when on the occasion, every once in a while, you're out for a steak at Longhorn Steakhouse, and you have that wonderful grilled steak before you, and you come to your last bite, and you're about to say farewell, my friend, and say goodbye, that that can be a sad ending. Uh, I know it's a sad ending for not all, but some family vacations that are really going well and not driving you crazy. The very last day, you hate to see it come to an end. I know my children sometimes hate to see things come to an end, uh, especially when they're little and, and you're really playing with them and you're roughhousing with them and you're tickling them so much where they begin to get the hiccups and, uh, and you stop and you say, okay, that's enough. And they sit down and they go, well, what, no, just one more time, one more time. And you do it again. And then they say, what? Just one more time. And finally you're like, I've had it enough, enough, stop. Which they always follow up with the words going, but why? Why does it have to stop? Well, because some of us have to go to work. That's why it has to stop. And so sometimes we just don't like when things have to end. Well, in chapter 8 of the book of Amos, we have one of those times. Here is Mart. Here is Mart. God reveals to Amos that this is going to be the end of the northern kingdom of Israel as they know it. And he has revealed this truth to his people through a series of visions Last week, we saw three of those visions, and today, we see just one of them here in chapter 8, and this vision deals with a basket, and within that basket is, is a whole bundle of summer fruit. Now, summer fruit is significant because it distinguishes itself from all other types of fruit because by the mention of that, we know that these were the last fruits that were harvested for that particular agricultural year. When that, when that fruit was harvested, everybody knew that, that planting and, and, and taking up the crops and harvesting had ultimately come to an end. And in the same way, this is serving symbolically for the people because what they're letting them know is that you too, just as the season's coming to an end, the season on the northern kingdom of Israel too is coming to an end. Just like this fruit was ripe for harvest, so Israel now is ripe for the judgment of God. And so what he does in the beginning of the chapter, he reveals all this. I didn't read the scriptures, but the first couple of verses, first three verses, he's letting us know he's giving a, 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 a um, he's pronouncing the end of Israel. And the end of the chapter, he begins to reveal what that end looks like. And he begins to say that the people were going to experience an earthquake, darkness, uncontrolled weeping as at a funeral, at the loss of someone that you love, that there was going to be a great famine. And this famine was going to be more than just them not having enough food to eat. It was going to be a famine from the very word of God. God, in essence, sits there and says, hey, look, I've wanted to talk with you. I've wanted you to hear me. I've wanted you to obey me. I've spoken to you time and time again, but you just simply won't listen. 
Then at the very end of the chapter, he says, this is what it looks like when people refuse to listen to me. It's dark, it's horrendous, it's hard, and it's silent. This is what it looks like, a life apart from God. And that judgment specifically was fulfilled in what we call the intertestamental period, which was that God refused to speak to his people for a period of 400 years between the New Testament and the Old Testament. So in the beginning, you have this pronouncement of judgment. At the end, you have this picture of what that judgment looks like. And nestled in between, squeezed in between, is the answer, why? Why is this judgment coming apart? Just like my kids, they want to know, why does, why does the tickling games have to quit? Well, here, God is going to let them know very clearly why it is coming to an end, and it's because of their sin. Now, here's what we have to keep in mind. A couple weeks ago, a couple chapters ago, we talked about something very similar. And we talked about the specific sins that the people were guilty of. And we went through, there were four of them that we had gone through. And now we come back to a very similar idea of the people of what they were specifically guilty of before God. But here he gets even more specific. And if you were to funnel it all down, here's what God says. He says, the reason that I'm going to judge your nation can be followed. You can follow it down and trickle it down to one sin. And that is the sin of greed. The sin of selfishness and greed. And so what we want to look at this morning is we want to look at what was it that made them guilty of this particular sin. And we're going to see just two things this morning, just two points we're going to focus on. The first was that their greed outweighed compassion for others. Their greed outweighed compassion for others. Now look at verse 4, if you will. God says there, he says, Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end. So what he's saying is, he says, the reason that this ultimate judgment is coming upon the nation of Israel is because they have mistreated those who were poor inside of the land. Now, the Bible teaches us from beginning to end that there are several different reasons why there's poverty in the world that we live why we experience poverty here today, and why they experience poverty during the time of Amos and during Amos's time. One of those reasons was because of sickness and in death. The first cause of poverty was sickness and in death. Remember the Jewish culture, it was a male-dominated culture. That is that the men took the primary responsibility of providing for the home. Wives didn't go out and get another job and you wouldn't combine the incomes to be able to make it. That's, it's a little bit different than today. Basically, the man would go out, he would work, and the family would live on whatever the, the husband and, and the father would, would make. Now, if he got sick, if he was injured... If he were to take on some type of disease and it would cause him uh, maybe blindness or, 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 or for him not to be able to walk and he became lame, well, then they would be in big trouble because he wouldn't be able to work. So he would then become a beggar literally every day finding the best place to be able to sit where he knew that some good traffic was going to be and where people were going to be most benevolent to be able to give them just enough bread during the day for him to be able to live and his family to ultimately be able to live. So the cause of, of, of poverty during that day, and even in today, sometimes is sickness and death. A second cause, according to the word of God, is laziness and mismanagement. That is that there are some who just aren't going to work. And the Bible teaches if you don't work, you don't eat, in essence. And so what would happen is some people just refuse because of their laziness, because of their slothfulness, as the book of Proverbs says, that they wouldn't work and so they would be in poverty. Sometimes it was a mismanagement of the things that God had entrusted them with. 
They, God had given them what they needed to survive, but they didn't manage it well. We read in Proverbs 12, 11, it says, Whoever works his hand will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs 14, 23, we read, In all toil there is profit, but, but, but mere talk tends only to poverty. He says, if you work, you're going to make some money, you're going to be able to eat, you're going to be able to stay out of poverty. He says, if you don't work, then you're not going to be able to have income and you're not going to be able to stay out of poverty. Now, let's make sure we're abundantly clear. This doesn't mean that this is always how it works. It doesn't mean that if you just have a good work ethic and you go out there and you work really hard and you put yourself up by the bootstraps that you're never going to have financial problems or you're never going to find yourself in poverty. I'm telling you, it happens every day to people, not only in this country, but around the world. They're not in poverty because they're lazy. They're not in poverty because they've mismanaged their money. They've just fought difficult times. But what we're saying, what the Bible is saying is this is generally the cause of poverty. Generally, one of the causes is people decide, hey, we're just not going to work or they mismanage what they have. Now, there is a third cause of poverty in the Word of God, and this is the focus of what's happening here in the text. This is specifically the sin that God's people were committing at this time that brings about their judgment. And that is, the third cause is, is ultimately the greed, greed and oppression. Greed and oppression. Now, I need you to get out of your Republican-Democrat-type thinking, all right? Push that aside just for a moment so that you could hear what the Word of God ultimately teaches us. And what the Bible teaches us is that the greed of the rich and their oppression of the poor is the primary cause of poverty in the world in which we live. In fact, what you need to look at the graphic picture of verse four again, in those two phrases, the first trampling the needy, it's showing that those with wealth were literally marching on and stomping on the bodies and the corpses of those who were poor. This is God saying this. On the other side, he talks about bringing the poor of the lamb to an end. The word end speaks of, of annihilation, that they are being destroyed by the oppressive rich who are oppressing those who are ultimately poor. And so their disregard for the poor, those who were in poverty, is seen most clearly in verse 6. Notice verse 6, if you will. He says that, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. What they're talking about is they're talking about slavery. If you were with us back in our study of 1 Timothy, you found out that, that God completely rejects any form of slavery that would make somebody be, be viewed as a, 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 a piece of, of property of another individual. Why? Because all men and women are created in the image of God. So it was a complete rejection. But yet these people during God's time, pronouncing that they were God's people, were taking part in that very type of slavery. And because of their greed... It ultimately demonstrated that it outweighed their compassion for other people. In the mid-1700s, there was a woman, you might recognize this name, a woman by the name of Queen Marie Antoinette. She was married to Louis XVI of France. And during this particular time of France, it was very difficult making a living. In fact, there was two factions. There was the very rich, the, rich, the, the, the really rich aristocrats during the day, and that made up a very small part of the population. Then there was the majority of the population. There was no middle class during that day. They were just all impoverished, very 
poor. And in fact, they were so poor that it was said that 50% of everything that they made in a day's wage went from just buying a little bit of bread. Just a little bit of bread. We're not talking about vegetables. We're not talking about meat. We're not talking about medicines. Just enough to be able to have enough bread to be able to make light to sustain life. And so during this day, tensions really begin to rage between the rich and the poor, and things were really not good at all. And there seemed to be this insensitivity by the rich to the poor. There they are, living in their plush houses, having servants, eating all of their food, while the rest of France was, in essence, starving to death. And it is said, according to custom, and when I say according to custom, because it's never been proven that she actually said it, but that, that the queen that Marie Antoinette, when she was told that the people were starving for a lack of food, that they had no food to eat, she said to them, sarcastically, we don't know if she said it or not, but she said, then let them eat bread. Let them eat bread. How calloused and how, not only callous, but what a complete lack of any kind of compassion whatsoever to see people who are starving and yet the queen who is supposed to be looking after them, who's supposed to be tender and have mercy to them and look after and to be able to provide for them, say to them, let them just go have and eat. Let them just go eat cake. Knowing very well that they didn't have cake to eat, they didn't even have bread to eat. What was this type of callousness that we see in God's people? In God's people, they're not saying, let's eat cake, but what they're using is another phrase, the same phrase during that day that demonstrated the same type of lack of compassion was, hey, look, uh, uh, allow the poor to be bought, let the needy for a pair of sandals. Same thing that's going on. They had no compassion. They had absolutely no concern for anybody else. This is the same attitude. And this is God is so fed up with this type of attitude, with a lack of care for those people who are in need around him. While God's people are living these rich lives and, and, and have more money than they know what to do with, in fact, all they're cared about is, is their well-being and their comfort while all those around them are suffering. God is so upset about this type of attitude that he says, it's enough. It's enough. I can't handle it anymore. The judgment of God is coming upon him. You know, it's easy for us to feel a sense of condemnation on people like this. When we hear people like this, people like Marie Antoinette, who would say something so disparaging. And it's easy for us to sit back, uh, at least so far this morning, and go, well, praise God, finally a sermon I'm not guilty of. This is great, Mike, because I love poor people. I don't feel bad. I mean, I feel bad for them. I feel compassion for them. Uh, you know, I feel sad when I hear about other people who are ultimately struggling. And matter of fact, I actually have compassion, the very compassion that these people are lacking. The problem for us, though, is that we need to understand that whenever we speak of biblical compassion, we're not speaking about a feeling. We speak of biblical compassion. We're not speaking of just what you feel or just using compassionate words. The Bible says that compassion, at least as the Bible defines it, is always in action. If you look at James chapter 3 and verse 15, James wrote, he says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Answer, it does no good. You're not helping that person impoverished at all. All the compassionate feelings and compassionate words are nothing without compassionate acts of giving and helping of the poor. Now, the question for me and what I had to struggle with all day or all week was, is there any application of this for us to today? And I would dare say the fact that Christmas is close approaching, 
fast approaching, and we are making a list, and we are checking it twice. And the truth is, if you would check it a third time, you would notice on almost all the lists that we are writing up, not only for ourselves, but what we want to buy for other people, there is almost not a single thing on that list that helps sustain life. It's all luxuries. Everything on that list is luxury. Everything on that list isn't going to help us sustain life. It's just going to help us take an already awesome, luxurious life to make it even better. And let me back off just for a moment. I'm not saying that all of that is wrong. If you've been here long enough, you understand there's balance in the, in the scriptures. We understand that the Bible says that one of the reasons that he gives you more than you need is to be an incredible blessing. How many are blessed by God? Yes. And so God has given us all this, and he's blessed us in these individual ways. But the problem is not that we would take some of this and spend some of it on our own for things that are not just absolutely needed, but the fact that in doing so, our focus would be on the excess while at the same time turning a blind eye for all those who don't even have enough for their lives to be sustained. This is the type of attitude that God has absolutely no, uh, no patience for. This is why the judgment of God is ultimately coming upon the people. And so we see in this passage, please, you know, I think sometimes when we look at this, we begin to make excuses and we say, well, Brother Mike, I don't know any poor people. I've heard that before. I don't know any poor people. And what they use is they use the phrase, I don't know any poor people to be able to be an excuse of why they're not engaging and using their funds to be able to help poor people. But here's what I want you to understand. That's not an excuse that validates our actions of not giving. What that does is it's just more, it just demonstrates more of a lack of compassion, the fact that we don't even go out of our way and find out who the poor in the world are to actually be able to help with what God has entrusted us with. So it's an excuse, but it's really an indictment on us, not a valid excuse. I think another one of the, the indictments as well, or one of the excuses that we use, is sometimes we begin to think, if we're really honest, that those who are poor are there because of their own fault. I th- to be honest with you, I, I think I kind of grew up in a period of time thinking this. You even say, well, it's their own fault, they don't work, and the Bible says don't work, you don't eat, they're lazy, they're over here. Guys, I'm, I'm telling you, not only from the Word of God, but even from experience, which is below the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, I've met many, many people that it has nothing to do with them being lazy of why they're struggling so much financially. Sometimes wives and children have been abandoned by their husbands. Sometimes their husbands have died. There are some people who have fallen, even people within our own church that are really struggling to try to make the bills, try to make the, uh, meet the bills, not because they're lazy, not because they're overextended, just because they've had difficulties come in their life that were completely unforeseen. But here's what I want you to know. There are, in fact, people who do face financial difficulties because it is their own problem, because of the bad mistakes that they've made. But that's not a reason not to be able to help those who have stumbled along the way and made mistakes. In fact, if you go back to the book of Leviticus chapter 25, just write that down. Go back. God is telling the people in the Old Testament how they were to take care of the poor. And four or five times, he says, these are the people you take care of, the strangers, your family, those that you love, those who are close to you, your neighbors. And he's going down. And not once does he say that you were to withhold help from them because they got themselves in a difficult position and it was because of their own fault. He says, it's not our place to judge that. It's our place to be able to help those that have find themselves in terrible need. That's important for me. Because there are many times that I've thought about giving someone, and I thought, you know what? Well, this is their own fault. I'm not going to bail them out now. Look what they ended up ultimately doing. 
But you know what? If we do that, you know what the ultimate, I'm not, let me back up. I'm not saying that we don't use wisdom. I'm not suggesting that we don't take the whole word of God and the counsel of the word of God. I don't say that we give to people that we know that they're going to take the money and they're going to do something that's illegal or they're going to use it to be able to continue in their sin. What I'm saying is that our compassion must match the compassion of Jesus Christ that he had for us. If there is a one of us who is impoverished in every way imaginable in our sin, if we were to sit back and God was only to come to us and to be able to help those who didn't get in the pit and in the debt that we owe to God, uh, it, it, it was never our fault, then God would never ultimately help us. Instead, God's grace and God's mercy came to all of us who were guilty. We got into the sinful place that we are, but yet he's gracious and compassionate to us to be able to pay that sin debt and the gospel as well as you and I ought to be the most giving people. You and I ought to be the most helpful people. And some people would sit back and say, but I don't know anybody. It's your responsibility and my responsibility to know who is poor. It is your responsibility and my responsibility to ask, to know, to sit there. And so here's what we're talking about. You said, Mike, do we have to crumple up the, the, the Christmas list? No. But what I'm saying is with your Christmas list, understand that everything that God has given you, all of these blessings is not just for you to heap up for yourself. Your compassion for the lost cannot be less than your own desire for the greedy things of this world. He says that's what ultimately brings the judgment of God. So that's the first thing. It, don't don't y'all feel warm inside after that point? Isn't that just exciting? And this is it, What we're trying to find out is what God loves and what it is that God hates. And we've got to be able to take that serious. There's a second thing that we see. Not only, first of all, did God did, did their greed outweigh their compassion for others, but second, their greed outweighed their love for God. Their love for God. Now notice, if you will, in verse 5, follow along. We're, this is our last point. It says, when will the new moon be over? This is what the people were saying. When will the new moon be over that we may sell again and that the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? And the people of Israel, you need to understand, were immensely religious. They were professional religious people. Everything on their calendar, everything on their day planners revolved around religious activities. They loved to take part in times of worship, visiting religious sites. They loved to observe religious festivals. In fact, that's what they're mentioning here right here is a festival of the new moon, the new moon festival. Now this tells us something about this people, how serious they were about their religion and doing all the things that God called them to. The Numean religion was the least significant and least important of all the different festivals that the Jewish people were commanded of God to ultimately observe. So it teaches us that they were being obedient, not just in the big things, but in taking part in the religion, even the small, little religious things that God was commanding them to do. And not only were they observing all of these, these festivals, but they were observing the day of the Sabbath. God had specifically commanded them to keep the Sabbath holy. That is, that they worked to work on that day. And they made sure that they didn't work. Now, at first, you sit there and say, why would God judge them for this? Everything sounds so good. They're, they're, they're following the festivals. They're, uh, they're obeying and they're observing uh, the Sabbath. Why in the world would God bring judgment upon the people? Here's why. Get this. Because they were there physically, but their minds and their hearts were far away. They were going through the routines but there was nothing real going on in their heart and their mind was not engaged to what it was that God was trying to teach them. Where were their minds? Their mind was on their, to, to be able, for you who are in the 80s, you'll remember this, their mind was on their money and their money was on their mind. Amen, all right? If you're from the 80s, you remember that? 
Maybe you shouldn't, but you probably do. And so this is the problem. The, my, the, the question is, is the, the truth is, while they're in there, while they're in these festivals, they're constantly looking at their calendar, asking the question, how many more days do we have to observe this? When they're in the worship services, they're constantly looking at their watch, going, just counting down the minutes. Some of you are nodding your head. You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Look, I've been doing this a long time. I know when I don't have you. And here's two sheer signs. When you fall asleep during the preaching, I know I don't have you. You're here physically, but not spiritually. The other is when people are constantly looking at their watches of what is going to come after this. That's where their heart is, not what's happening in the midst of where we are. So the question is, why bother? Why show up? Why observe these different festivals? Why, 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 why come and take part in these different worship activities? The truth of the matter is, is because it was a means to an end for them. It wasn't an end into itself. It wasn't because they were there to worship God. They were there to get what they ultimately were craving for and ultimately wanted to. See, when you showed up at these festivals, all the other families were there and all the other business were people were going to be there. And so there, if they saw you with your family and you got little Jimmy and little Johnny and people sit there and go, man, they are an upstanding person. They, they are really God-fearing people. Look at them taking part in all these religious activities. And all of a sudden they said, that's the kind of guy that I want to do business with. Did you know that there's actually churches that that's why people show up? Maybe not just churches, but people in churches, they say, hey, listen, we need to be able to keep up our appearances around the community because if not, it might be ultimately bad for business. This is precisely what was going on. And it was not only because they were trying to keep up good appearances, they were also trying to come and do everything right to assure them that God would bless them. What they were doing is God said, here's the big list of things I want you to do. And they're walking around with all their little boxes and they're checking them all off making sure and sitting there go, I did everything that God told me to do. Now I'm going to ask him for the things that I really want. Had nothing to do with wanting God. Had nothing to do with being able to pursue him, be able to pursue his will and to know who God was. They just wanted God's stuff. And one of the clearest examples of this, I think, is, 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 is as, we're, as we're looking through, is found in verse five. Notice this. He says, that in the end of verse five, he says that we may offer wheat for sale that we may make an ephah small and a shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances. This is how you know when you're at church that you're not really at church. While they're sitting there, they're thinking not of who God is, not of what God wants to say to them, but they're thinking about how they can earn more money. And the way they're going to earn more money is by ripping the poor off. Their idea is, hey, we have this little ephah. It's a measuring basket. It shows you how much weight or grain that you would, you would buy for such and such a cost. And they said, how could we end up shrinking that thing, making it smaller so that we can keep more of it to ourselves? They said, how could we change the balances out and all the, different, all, all, all the different weights so that we can make it actually appear that they're getting a certain amount, but they're really ultimately not? That's how you know that things have ultimately gone south. Here's what God is doing. God is speaking the people are there, but their hearts and their minds are long away. He wants to speak to them. He wants to speak to you. But there are so many people whose minds are so wrapped up in so many things. Think Martha once again. Think Mary once again. He says, Mary, there are many things that are on your mind. But, 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 but Mary is thinking, or Martha, many things are on your mind. You're distracted by many things. But only one thing is important. And, and, and Mary has chosen that important thing. It's, if, look, if you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're, if you're a mom and dad and you come home and your kids are there, you know exactly what it's like to be there physically but not be there mentally or emotionally. Would you agree? 
men we come in. If you have at least one child, this happens to you. And it's a wonderful thing. I want to remind you of that. Your children run up to you, and it's awesome until they get older. And when they're younger, they come up and go, Daddy, it's so good to see you. Let me tell you about everything that happened today. And they begin to want, and they want to show you, and they want to show you this, and they want to show you that. And some of them begin really smart, and they go, hey, listen, because they're vying for the attention. And they're like, hey, come to my room. I want to tell you about what Jesus taught me today. And then you get in there like, well, it's really not about Jesus. It's about my allowance. And so, so they get really smart. And, uh, you know, to, to, to know where to go and how to, how to kind of get them where you're supposed to be going. And, and, um, and, and so, so they come to you, and, and the truth is, now, don't look all spiritual at me. You know this. They're talking. You're not hearing a word they're saying. But you're like a robot, and you're just walking through this, and you're doing the whole, uh-huh, yeah, okay, that's nice. Oh, good for you. Okay, awesome. Thanks for telling me that. Love you, pumpkin. Bye-bye. Right? And you go through this, but the truth of the matter is you haven't heard one bit of what it is that that individual, what that child is ultimately saying. And I wonder why is it that we do it? Why do we do it? Why do we just go through the motions? I think if we're honest, if we had the ability to be, I think it's because you and I are thinking, hey, listen, this is just another thing that we need to check off. To be a good dad, I need to spend some time with my kids. To be a good dad, I need to kind of listen to what they're saying. So if I just spend enough time like this, then I can get, when my mind is somewhere else, then I can ultimately get to what it is that my mind and my heart are really wanting. And look, kids, when they're little, they don't get it. The older they get, they get it clearly. They know exactly what's happening. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were on vacation, and, and uh, there was a, um, uh, we had a, uh, uh, there was some people making uh, animal balloons out of you know what animal balloons are, right? They're animals made up balloons. There you go. There you go. Good explanation. And so, and I think these things are awesome. It's amazing what they could do with those balloons. And so all the, the little ones are all ordering. One of the older daughters was helping me. And, and the little ones were like, I'm like, hey, what are you going to get? Are you going to get a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex? What are you going to get? And they're like, I'll have a sword. I'm like a sword. That's so novice, right? That's easy. I could make you a sword. Get something really cool. The next one gets up. I want a bow tie. All right, here's a bow tie. Great. Someone's got to get a go to my oldest daughter and I said, man, you got to get something good. What do you want to get? She goes, I want to get the monkey. I'm like, yeah, get the monkey. The monkey's awesome, right? I mean, he's just cool. Nothing's better than the monkey. So she gets the monkey and a little bit later in the day, I, I go to the rooms and, and one of the little ones has got this monkey balloon in her hand and she's, do you know what that means? A young one with a balloon in their hand. What does that mean? It means destruction, right? And so there she is. And you have to understand something about my personality. I don't like things to be undone. Like, I'm the one, I'm the one who wants to super glue all the Legos when the kids are done with it all together, because I don't like them to destroy it. It was a real panic for me when, when my son first got Legos, and I was like, honey, I was like, baby, you don't want to destroy that now. You put all that together. You don't want to make other things to it, right? And so that's just kind of my personality. And here's this wonderful monkey balloon. It's almost kind of like, for me, appreciation is not playing with the monkey. It's putting it up on a shelf for all to admire the monkey, Right? And so they're sitting back and they're kind of unwrapping some of this and, and all of a sudden it's starting to look like a, like a big tooth lizard, right? And it's like, it doesn't even look like a monkey. As they're doing it, I look to my oldest daughter, my, one of my daughters, and I tell her, I said, look, I said, I just got to tell you this. I said, um, I said if, if you allow them to be able to touch your monkey balloon, then uh, they are going to destroy it. That's it. That's all I'm going to say to you. And then she started saying something, but I really wasn't listening. I don't even know what I was thinking about, maybe dinner that night. And so, and then I keep seeing a couple minutes later, and I go, hey, listen, I just want to let you know that if they keep messing with that balloon, it's going to destroy it. And I'm just telling you, it's not going to look like a monkey anymore. Then you're going to be sad, and I'm going to be sad. Everybody's going to be sad. It's not going to be a monkey balloon anymore. 
I get down and she says a couple, she says a couple more things. I'm still preoccupied with something else. And finally, I mean, there, it's, it's, it's like one long balloon now. And I'm like, listen, don't get angry if they pop this balloon and you come back to me. I'm not even going to be listening. And at this point, she comes up to me. She grabs my two arms and she looks up and she goes, you're not listening to me. She goes, she goes that's not my monkey balloon. And then she goes, you're driving me crazy. <laughs> Literally her words. You're not listening to me. You're driving me crazy. God, in essence, in this text is basically saying the same thing to his people. He said, I've spoken to you time and time again. I, I just want to talk with you. I just want to communicate with you. I want to reveal myself to you. I want to reveal my will to you. He goes, but you're not listening. You're not listening. Your mind is somewhere else. You're preoccupied on other things. Your greed is outweighing your love for God. And, and, and it's interesting. God, God is constantly telling their people the importance of listening. Isaiah 29, 13, he says, And the Lord said, Because the people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far away. We see in Matthew chapter 23, verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are clean uh, on the outside of the cup and the plate. In other words, you go through all your religious practices. You are, you are at church when you're supposed to be there. He says, however, he says, you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Because I don't have your attention. You're not listening to what I'm ultimately saying. This is another one of those times and one of those points I think we can get to. And we can say to ourselves, this has nothing to do with me. I've been here for the last 30 minutes, and I haven't thought about money once. That's how you're thinking. You missed the point. The question is, what have you been thinking about during this time? One author says it like this. He says, how much of our thinking in times of worship is self-serving rather than God-honoring? In other words, when you come to the house of God, let me ask you this question. Is your mind on God? As your thoughts, man, when I come to this part, I can't wait to sing and to praise God because God is good. I cannot wait to hear the word of God so I can hear about who this God is who saved me, so I can know him better, so I can live more faithfully to him, and I can glorify him by my very life. Is that the thought process, or is it simply, i got to get to church because I've got a need in my life? Now, here's where the trouble is, and I don't want to just leave you with that, because if I think I leave you there, then I think we're in trouble. Because the truth of the matter is, there are many people here who have a need of God. And because of that need, you are seeking God more than you would have ever sought him before without it. Some of you are sick and you need a healing. Some of you are in trouble and you need relief. Some of you have a bad marriage, you need God to be able to heal it. Some of you have children that are not repentant and, and they're rebelling against God and you need God to be able to save them. And that's what's driven you here today. My question is, is, is that wrong? No. But the question is, how do you distinguish one for another? How do you distinguish if you're here just to get something from God or you're here for God and you're asking for God's grace and mercy to be able to ultimately meet that need? How do you know? I think the simplest way to be able to determine that is this, is what if God, ask yourself this question, the thing that you're hoping for, the thing that you're praying for. And you know, at the bottom line, it may be a very good, right thing. But if God were right here right now to tell you very clearly, I'm not going to give you no matter how many times you ask, what do you do? Do you fall away? Or do you keep pursuing him? Do you keep following him? Do you keep loving him? Do you keep serving him? 
It's the only way to know whether all of this is truly about him or whether it's about your greed that outweighs our love for God. You know, I was trying to figure out, how do I, first one, dud. Second point, dud. This is such a downer. The question and the difficulty in the book of Amos is, where is the hope? Where is the hope in all of this? Here's the hope. Just stick with me for one moment. Nick, you can come at this time. The hope is this. Did you see how these two parts are broken down? The love for our neighbors and love for God. Does that sound familiar to you and to me? It, it does to me. Remember when Jesus is asked, hey, what is the greatest commandment of them all? What does he do? He sums all the law of the prophets up into two things. He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says the second is just like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. You know what Amos, God was telling Amos? He says the people had failed to obey God and had missed the standard that God had set for them. They failed to love God. They, fa they failed to love their neighbor. And the consequence of that is the judgment of God. The good news and the hope of this is, is that Jesus Christ did the very thing that you and I could not do. He loved God, his Father, with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. How do we know that? Because in the garden before he was crucified, he says to the Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. He wasn't about his own selfish greed. He was about the love of the Father of what would benefit him most and what would glorify him most. Then when he was on that cross, he showed his love and his compassion for each other that while he was being, while he was being killed on the cross, what did he do? Did he say, God, judge them? Did he call legions of angels to destroy them? No, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what it is that they are doing. That was the true compassion. So the truth is, so you say, what do we do this? See, if we had just stopped at that first two points and said, guys, you need, to, you need to look after the poor more and you need to love God more, then all of us would sit there and go, okay, my, Pastor Mike's just giving me more things now that I have to do. That's not the way Christianity works. Christianity is for you and I not to sit there and go, okay, I guess I need to give more to the poor and I need to love God more and I need to pay attention more. These are the things I'm going to do and hopefully God will love me more. God cannot love you any more than he loves you. This is not to gain his goodness and to gain his love. This is because he loves us and because he's been good to us. This is for you and I to sit back and to respond and go, you know what? God, I blew it. I didn't love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. I couldn't do it. And I didn't love my neighbor as myself. But now that he's regenerated me, that he's changed me, that he's put his spirit inside of me, that he's given me a new heart to want what God wants, I want all those things. But I'm now going to seek to love the, the poor and take care of the poor and love God and seek him out, not because it's going to make me right before him, but because I've been made right. And this is my act of worship unto a God who's been so good and gracious. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and thank you and worship you. I thank you for this morning and I thank you for your goodness. God, as we work through this difficult book of Amos, so much judgment, so much darkness, I thank you for the mercy of God that we see within it. I thank you, God, that this is the judgment. This is what we deserve. But because of Christ Jesus coming and dying for us, he took on himself what we deserved. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Now, God, I pray if there be anyone here that do not know you, and I know there are, they don't know you, they've, they, they, they're lost, they're apart from you. God, maybe they're even here because there's a need. God, the real reason you've brought them here is to demonstrate their greatest need, and that is Jesus. 
that if they had to repent of their sin and place their faith completely in you, you would save them. God, I don't know if you're going to answer whatever the other need is. I don't know if you're going to heal their body. I don't, I don't know if you're going to heal their marriage. I would pray that you would. We would we'd pray and believe that you can and know that you will. Do we know you can't? No. But one thing we know is that you will forgive and you will restore. So let us call out to you. God, help us right now. For we who have been so blessed, help us come and sit there and go, you know what? In this season, I cannot lose sight of the fact that there are people in this church, there are people in this community, there's a responsibility of all that God has entrusted me with to be able to help those who do not have enough. Let us commit ourselves to that, not to earn your favor, but because we've been given it. And God, help us to be focused. Help us to be focused during this time of year, God, not to, not to just give lip service and not just show up at church, but God, let this be a time when we are more passionate and more loving towards you than ever before. Let us hear you, let us seek you, let us love you. God, this is our prayer. Please answer it in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me.